Hello, everyone. My name is Josh, and uh, in, in case you don't know me, and in case you haven't been around, you've heard of Door of Hope, but you haven't been around either of the churches, there's more than one Josh between the two churches. I'm the one who always wears Levi's and is not fashion savvy. Uh, I don't have any gold teeth or anything like that. But I did meet with that Josh today for lunch, and uh, he, afterwards I got caught in one of these hailstorms. I ride a motorcycle, and I got caught in this hailstorm, and I don't even wear a full face helmet, so I'm just getting like pelted by this hail. And my, uh, my Levi's, because I always wear Levi's, were completely soaked when I came back here. So I swapped them out for sweatpants, and then I said, hey, you think I can get away with wearing sweatpants on the stage? And there was a universal no in the response to that. So you might know me as the Josh who almost wore sweatpants. But um, anyhow, I'm a Josh who loves Jesus. And I hope you're a, whatever your name is, who also loves Jesus and wants to think about him and meditate on him. And um, we've been doing these meditations for five days running. Has anybody made it to every single one? Oh, there's a couple people couple people here who don't have little kids. <laughs> and if you do have kids, then I am, I am in awe. You should be up here. You should be up here talking, right? Um, but even if you haven't made it to all of them, I'm glad you made it to this one. Um, just by way of review, we're going through the different sayings that Jesus said from the cross. Jesus said different things from the cross, and we're taking a, a time to meditate on each of these sort of independently. And so the first one, Josh talked about when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that, Josh has, uh, pointed out that this not only points to our need for forgiveness, but points to God's heart to forgive. And then uh, the second one Cameron did, which was on the saying of Jesus to the thief on the cross who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise, which is awesome. It speaks once again to God's heart to actually desire to forgive, but also just how easy it is on our part, how little there is required of us to do in that process. And then Josh talked about um, Jesus speaking to his mother, Mary, who was standing there, seeing her son being tortured to death, and how her, you know, she was experiencing the death of a dream, perhaps, you know. She wanted to grow old with her son and have him around. This certainly wasn't what she had in mind, and how Jesus says to, uh, well, he can't really point because he's on the cross, <laughs> but he says, he says, a woman, behold your son, and then he says, I don't know, maybe he did this to John, like, hey, behold your mother. Um, is that... Are cross jokes like, is that bad? I don't know. Anyway, so, so Jesus takes care of his mother from the cross. And through the death of her dream of what she desires will uh, come out something even greater than she could have imagined. The Lord himself, her son, making his room in her heart, dwelling with her forever in a new way. And then last night, of course, I mean, I wasn't there. Um, but I'm assuming what Josh talked about was... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm sure he talked about the paradox of what it means that God is being forsaken. 
Um, and I'm, we're going to get into a lot of like paradoxical things tonight as well. So I hope it's not too uh, repetitive, but this could be meditative. I was talking with, when Josh and I were talking at lunch, we were like, you know what, maybe next year we could spend all five days talking about this one thing, like the paradox of the cross or something like that. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, but either way, now we're getting into where Jesus says, I thirst. And it's found in John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up or you want to power it on and flip, scroll to it, it's in John chapter 19, uh, verse 28. I'm just going to read the one verse. It says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Let's pray. Lord, we have come here, and I'm assuming that mostly why we've come here is because we do experience a thirst. We desire to take a drink from the well of who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through whatever words that I'm going to say and that it would penetrate deeply into our hearts and move us, draw us into yourself, the fountain of all life, the supply of everything that we need. Would, Holy Spirit, would you do that for us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So, thirst. Uh, that's what Jesus says, I thirst. Uh, I want to talk about that for just a minute here. I'm reminded of, uh, most of you probably have heard of David Foster Wallace's address to graduating students called This Is Water. If you haven't, go look it up. But uh, one of the things he says in there is he, he has this joke that's sort of the, the punchline through the whole thing. There's these fish swimming along, and another fish swims by and says, Hey guys, how's the water? And the one fish says to the other one, Hey, what's water? The point being, there are some things that you're so just like living in them that you don't think about them. You take it for granted. And thirst is one of those things, is it not? How often do we experience thirst in, a, in every single day of our life? But we don't think about the fact that we experience thirst. What does this mean? Like, what does it mean that we thirst? You know, we, we thirst... Because we need to drink to live. We need water in order to live. In fact, for any, any physical thing to live, it requires water. So if you go to um, Google Earth and you look at the blue and green planet, go zoom, zoom in on, uh, on the land. And if you follow, if you get in close enough, you'll see it's not all green. It's actually only green where there's a river. And the further you move away, just go to the Columbia River and then go north and go south of that river and watch it turn from yellow to brown. Because nothing lives without water. See, this idea of thirst is that we are contingent beings. We depend on something outside of ourselves to take into ourselves in order for our existence to continue. We must drink in order to live. Thirst points to our lack to our need, to the fact that we have to depend on something outside of us in order to continue to survive. And obviously, like, that's, that's a physical fact, right? But we also experience this kind of spiritual thirst, 
Do we not? My, I, I was reading a book, this was several months ago, called Into Thin Air. It was about a, a mountaineering crew that went to summit Everest and they got caught in a storm and many of them died. And there was a, a movie called Everest. It was made after it. And I was watching it with my wife. And while we were watching it, she was going, I'm so mad at these guys. I, I can't stand. These guys, why are they doing this? They're putting their whole life on the line. They're putting everything at risk just to get to a mountain. How silly. Why would they do that? And this was kind of addressed in the movie. Hey, why are you guys doing that? Because it's there. Because the mountain is there. Or they'll say, because I have this drive. There's this thing in me that can't rest, that can't be settled until I summit this mountain. And you find that in these kinds of um, activities, mountaineering, rock climbing. But you know what? Even if you're not involved in that, we all got this too, right? We all got that thirst. I mean, if you're single, guess what? You got this thirst for that special someone for your spouse-to-be, and you're stopping at nothing to get it. Or if you're married, you remember what that's like, and you thirst for other things, you know, whether it's a career, success. Maybe you're thirsting to not be married anymore. I don't know. But uh, whether it's like your career or success, um, getting a house, um, making it to retirement, raising kids, grandkids, having them all move away, being able to travel, golden years, whatever it is, we have this thirst that drives us in life. And the crazy thing is that it's never satisfied, is it? It's never actually satisfied. Like you only get... You only get moments of satisfaction, maybe hours. You might get days if you're lucky, or weeks. The ancients knew about this. In fact, the Greeks had had created sort of like a paradigm with these sort of tiers of satisfaction or happiness that people come into uh, when their thirst is driving them. And the, the most baseline level, call it happiness level one, that happens when uh, that's just animal happiness. You know, we have these drives. It's literal hunger and thirst, sex, things like that. Um, that we have this drive to be satisfied, but then it's almost immediately, like it's not very long. Like last time you drank something, when's the next time you're going to drink something? It's just going to be hours. It's only going to be hours. You're only going to be satisfied for hours and then you're going to need it again. So as you satisfy that thirst, um, you end up being thirsty again. And so you have this sort of dissatisfaction on that level one. Now the way out is you go up a level to level two, which is where your mind is actually turned on, right? And you set yourself to a task or a goal or something. You know, if you're a student, you say, I want to get all straight A's. And so you work really hard to get those straight A's. Or if you're one of the lucky people in Portland who's actually a homeowner, can afford that, or maybe you got in when you could afford it, um, you might be like, dang, I want to fix up my kitchen, Put in new countertops, put in new floors. You set yourself to a project and you complete it. And when you finally get done, you spend months and months and months on it. You finally got done, you sit back and you go, ah, yeah, that's what I wanted. You're satisfied. You, you scratch that itch. You satisfied that hunger. And then what happens? You start looking at the bathroom. You're like, man, we need new tile in this bathroom, you know? And you can go through every single room in the house and then what? Like, you know what, this house is just too small. We better put some dormers in, you know. Or you see someone else's house that's even more cool, and you're like, this house sucks. I need a better one, you know. So you get another one. So you're hap- that sort of that satisfaction you got in setting yourself to something turns into this dissatisfaction. 
And you have to either run round and round and round on that loop, or you have to go up a level. And so they said the third level is where you're actually no longer focusing on achievement or success, but you're actually focusing on turning your energy towards the good of another, giving your life away for someone else. And you see this uh, in parenting probably is the easiest way to point this out. You see people struggling, exhausted all the time. I'm a parent of young children. I can tell you it's true. I'm exhausted all the time. But you know what? I'm also very satisfied. I lay my head on the pillow and it feels good to know. You know what? You're going to spend your life doing something. You're going to spend your life doing something. It's either sitting on the couch or working for someone else who's going to make a bunch of money off of what you're doing. Like, you're going to do something with your life. And I look at it, I'm like, this is the best way to spend my life. Just give my life away for these kids. There's a satisfaction that comes with that. But there's also a dissatisfaction that comes. Because you know what? Your kids are not going to think you're that great pretty soon. They're going to get rebellious. And maybe you work through that phase and you still have a relationship with them, but they're going to move out. See, the trouble with this, this happiness on that third level is that it's... Um, it's a need-to-be-needed kind of thing. You're, you're, you're satisfied because you're useful, because you're needed. But someday, you and I, whether it's for 10 minutes or 10 years, 30 years, or however long, we're going to be useless. We're going to be a burden to somebody. And then you're going to have that deep thirst that cannot be satisfied. So the only way out is to go up to a happiness level four, which is what the Christians added to this. But... I'm not going to talk about that right now. We'll get to that in the end. So if you're OCD, just put a number four there and a little bit of space, and we'll get back to it, okay? So that's the four levels of happiness. Anyways, all, all, this, all these things dry, are, are, have to do with the fact that we have this drive. We're incomplete in ourselves, and we are driven to do things that will then satisfy whatever that thirst is that we have, right? That's, that's what it means for us to be thirsty, now, I want to transition here and look. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at God becoming thirsty. What does that mean? This is a huge paradox, right? Because God, in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are wholly sufficient in themselves. That is, God is, there's nothing that you could add to God that could improve Him. He's not lacking in anything. He didn't create because He had some need. He doesn't desire worship or glory because he has, He's insufficient in Himself. He needs something outside of Him to continue to put something into Him. No, He's com- completely happy in Himself. Entirely satisfied. Cannot be improved upon. It's like bacon, you know? Like, you can put bacon on anything and it makes it better. I don't know if there's anything you can put on bacon to make bacon better. It's just like, it's... It's, it's the perfect food. <laughs> you might even say it's divine. <laughs> that was a joke. No, no, don't quote me on that. Let's scratch that from the recording. Uh, but anyways, so God does not need anything. Does not have any needs. Experiences no lack, no deprivation in his being. So what does it mean now that God thirsts? Because God in the Bible... God is described in this, in this way, I mean, the fancy, the fancy word that, you know, theologians come up with words so that they can, like, maintain their jobs and, and justify the fact that they're still teaching at a seminary. The, the fancy word is aseity. God is aseity, meaning he is not contingent. He doesn't depend on anything for his existence. And in the Bible, you see it in things like um, Psalm, or not Psalm, uh, in the book of Jeremiah. God says to the people of Israel, he says, 
he's rebuking them. He says, you have rejected me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out, dug out cisterns for yourself. Now, a cistern is a pit in the ground that collects rainwater or, or runoff so that they could have water for later. But it's a stagnant pool. It can get all kinds of things growing in it. It's nasty. And if you reach in with your cup or your water bottle or your bucket and you draw water out, it has one bucket less. And you do that enough times and there's no more in there. But God's referred to as the fountain of living water. I grew up in southern Oregon and my, uh, my parents, we had 10 acres in the side of a mountain and there's a spring there. And I can tell you, you hold your water bottle up to that spring and you fill it up and you pull it back and there's still water coming out. There's no less water. That's what God is like. It's in, in Psalm 36, this is one of my favorite things. I just got to, I was just looking for an excuse to be able to go here. But, uh, but Psalm 36, check this out, what it says about God. Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. That's what God is like. He's like a fountain that's never, like, it, it doesn't end. It doesn't matter how much you take away. It's always coming out. That's how God is. So then God becomes incarnate. That's the big mystery of the incarnation. How is an eternal God, limitless God, now become confined to space and time in a human body? How is it that the God, who's say, now becomes contingent? He's now hungry. And so he looks for figs on a fig tree. He's exhausted. So he sleeps in a boat, even while a storm's going on and it's going to sink. He's thirsty and he sits at a well and asks a woman for water. How is this possible? It's a great mystery. It's a great paradox. How is it that this God who has wanted for nothing can now crave and feel the anguish of the lack of living in a physical human body? It's a paradox. The impassable one suffers. And then if we fast forward up to the cross, we fast forward up to the crucifixion, we take it another step further. Now we have the author of life dying. We have the fountain of living waters thirsty. It's a paradox. How can this be? Now, of course, when Jesus is saying, I thirst, he's probably speaking of physical thirst. You know, he's lost a lot of blood, and he's probably really thirsty. But John says that he says this to fulfill the scriptures. And the very next verse, it says somebody goes and gets a, a sponge full of sour wine and gives it to him. And so most scholars, most of us, point back, oh yeah, Psalm 69, which is all about somebody who, whom everyone has turned against. And it says, they gave me sour wine instead of water to drink. It's pointing to Jesus. He's fulfilling the scriptures. And I think that that is true. But I actually think it's deeper than that. I think that what Jesus is experiencing is not just that physical need of water to fulfill that one passage. I think he's saying this to fulfill all of the scriptures at that time. What we call the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, because what Jesus is doing 
is what God's plan had always been. That we humans would not be able to make it, to do it on our own. He would have to come in and do it himself. He was going to have to come. Remember, John said, because it had been finished already. He's fulfilling the scriptures in taking taking on all of our sin so that even we're diving even deeper into the paradox so that the judge would become judged in our place and the sinless one would become sin on our behalf. Look at Isaiah. Here's a great example of this. Just one passage. Isaiah chapter 53 says this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of all. So that Jesus, for the first time ever, is actually experiencing that spiritual thirst. You know, when, before he came to the cross in his life, Jesus was wholly satisfied spiritually in himself. Because he had perfect communion with his father still. He never lost that. That's why Jesus didn't need a girlfriend. You know, he never got married, he never had a girlfriend or anything like that. He was perfectly satisfied. He wasn't setting out on a lucrative career. He didn't buy a house. He wasn't investing himself in all those things because he wasn't thirsty for it. And now, for the first time ever, God himself is experiencing what it's like to be one of us in thirsting for God because there's some sort of disconnect, some sort of disparity, some sort of lack in that communion. So that it's like in Psalm 42, where the author says, like a deer panting for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, it thirsts for you. When can I come to the living God? Or like in Psalm 63, where the author there says, Earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you. My soul longs for you like a a dry and weary land where there's no water. This is what Jesus is going through. This is what he's experiencing. The judge is being judged in our place. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the crazy thing about this too, here's just the crazy thing. He never ceased to be God through all of that. He never ceased to be the fountain of living waters even though he thirsted, right? Right after this, Jesus is going to die. Remember the story? And then soldiers are going to come and they're going to break his legs because they don't know he's dead, but then they realize he is. And so they thrust a spear into his side, right? And then what does John say? He says, then blood and water flowed out. And we Westerners who think so literally were like, oh yeah, it's because he had been dead for a long time and so the plasma and the blood had separated. And so they didn't know about plasma. It's just blood and plasma, but they call it blood and water. I actually think that John's far more artistic than that. He's actually an artist, and he's, he's taking this concept from the Old Testament that life comes through these two things, blood and water. In Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And you cannot have water without life. What happens when you poke God after he's dead? Life 
flows out. That's John's point, is that life is continually flowing out of him, even in death. Even in his death, life is flowing out. I'm glad you're excited, Luis. I'm excited, too. <laughs> Amen. I come here for you, too, Luis, just so you know. The blood and the water, life itself, the fountain of life, is still spilling out life, even in death. It's an amazing paradox. And so let's take another transition. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? It means that we actually get sucked into that paradox. He died so that we could be united to him. He thirsted so that our thirst could be wholly satisfied. And it's not just simply like a a switch is thrown and now you're a saint and you never sin again. Actually, you enter into this new paradox that Luther called simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and at the same time a sinner. That's the paradox that we all live in. And we, we know the sinner part. We tend to shy away from the justified part. But you know what? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The judge has made the judgment. The gavel has come down. Your sin has been laid on him. Double imputation is what theologians call it. All the wickedness, all the sin, all the inadequacy, all of us that is not fit to live with God was laid on him. It's his. It's not yours. You can't hang on to your guilt anymore. You can't hang on to your sin anymore. It's not yours. It's his. But also, his righteousness was imputed to us. All of his life, the life we could not live, that is given to us so that we are simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time. And what this means is that guilt has no rule over us. Shame has no rule over us. He took that guilt. He took that shame. It's his, not yours, not mine. And what this means is that that thirst that you feel, that thirst that you feel that drives you to run into success, to run into relationships, to watch rom-coms and eat uh, ice cream because you're alone and you're feeling sad, or that desire to go out and, I don't know, Look on Craigslist for that 86 Trans Am for hours. I don't know, that, that gnawing in your gut that drives you to do the things you do. And for some people, it drives them to just hit the bottle and their life falls apart or hit some kind of drug and it falls apart. And for most of us, we hit something else that's a lot more light. So we never actually see that our life is falling apart. We never actually see that we're missing out on the fountain of life. And Jesus promised... He says this in John chapter 4. He meets a woman at a well and he says to her, I have water to drink. If you drink it, you will live forever. And he says in John chapter 7, he says if anyone believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what? Notice what he did not say. He didn't say, um, you will have uh, that thirst sort of satisfied at like, you know, a quarter tank between a quarter tank and empty. Or like you'll get to full and then you can like, you'll waste it and then I'll, I'll dump a little bit. No, a river flowing, flowing out of you. A river of life. 
I'm talking about the fourth level of happiness. So OCD people, now you can go back to that section. This is, this is what they call the fourth level of happiness. And I, just to be clear, this is uh, perfect communion with God. This is the presence of God himself. And I'm not talking about goosebumps at a worship service. I'm not talking about a, a, a sensation when you're in the woods um, or anything like that. I'm talking about like a few people maybe get this one time in their lifetime. Like blown away by the actual presence of God. And, and I can't explain. This can't be really explained. Okay? There, there's no way of, of abstractly describing this. It can only be told in stories. So I have a, it's a short story I'm going to read to you that, that demonstrates what I'm talking about. This is a story from a, a woman named Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary to India and she worked with children. She says this, her name, this little girl, her name was Lola. She was five years old, a Brahmin child of much promise. She had sickened suddenly with an illness which we knew from the first must be dangerous. We could not ask a medical missionary to leave his hospital a day and a half distant for the sake of one child, but we did our, the best that we could. We sent an urgent message to a medical evangelist trained in Naor who lived nearer, and he came at once, but he arrived an hour too late. Before he came, we'd seen this. It was in that chilly hour between night and morning. A lantern burned dimly in the room where Lola lay. There was nothing in that darkened room to account for what we saw. The child was in pain, struggling for breath, turning to us for what we could not give. I left her with Mabel Wade and Ponamal, those are her, some of her co-workers, and going into a side room, I cried to our father to take her quickly. I was not more than a minute away, but when I returned, she was radiant. Her little, lovely face was lighted with amazement and happiness. She was looking up and clapping her hands as delighted children do. When she saw me, she stretched out her arms and flung them around my neck as though saying goodbye in a hurry to be gone. Then she turned to the others in the same eager way. And then again, holding out her arms to someone whom we could not see, she clapped her hands. Had only one of us seen this thing, we might have never tasted, or we, uh, we might have doubted. But we all three saw it. There was no trace of pain in her face. She was never to taste pain again. We saw nothing in that dear child's face but unimaginable delight. We looked where she was looking, almost thinking we could see what she saw. What must the fountain of joy be if the spray from the edge of the pool can be like that? That is the thing that will satisfy your thirst and it will last. The presence of God, God himself, Jesus, is there on the cross paving the way, thirsting so that you can be satisfied. He is the one place where you will find your thirst satisfied again and again and again forever and ever. And you and I go about thirsting, trying to satisfy that with so many simple little things. And I am cut to the heart just in meditating on this, on how much of my life I spend flicking through this little thing in my pocket because this thirst is driving me towards these very simple, easy things rather than to the thing that I need the most. 
So if you're here and you're hearing me, if you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're feeling this thirst, and you know you're trying to satisfy it somewhere other than Jesus, I encourage you right now, come to Jesus. Those things are called idols. And they will kill you. They will destroy your life. They will take from you. They won't thirst on your behalf so you can be satisfied. They will take your thirst and give you more. So give them up to Jesus. Repent. Come to him tonight. We're going to have people praying over here. Worship team, you can, you can come up, worship team. We have people praying over here. If the Lord is speaking to you tonight, go and talk to somebody. Talk to somebody who's on the prayer team who will pray with you. Talk to somebody you came with. Shoot, come and talk to me. I don't bite. My kids might, but they're in bed. So I'm safe. You can come talk to me. I would love to help you. I would love to listen. Come to Jesus tonight. Let him satisfy your thirst because he thirsted.